on the very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for um, tuning in. Uh, it's getting to be chilly. November in this part of Japan is pretty gray. Not much snow. Maybe a day or two of, out of the year. I really uh, miss snow as a Canadian. I love the way the whiteness blankets over everything. It gives new scenery to an old town. And for me, it's, it's very psychologically cleansing. It's heartening, too, in, in its own way. It uh, makes houses on the street feel closer together, like everything's a bit uh, cozier. Okay, enough of that uh, romanticizing. Let's move on to the game. I will say a quote from a philosopher, and you tell me who said it. I'll say it twice, and then pause for five seconds to let the internal machinery of yours crank... Uh, out the answer. You got that? Okay. Here we go. This person said, this philosopher said, I don't feel that it is necessary to know exactly what I am. The main interest in life and work is to become someone else that you are not in the beginning. Ooh, very transformative. Okay, one more time. I don't feel that it is necessary to know exactly what I am. You know, that's a common concern of philosophy, to discover who you are. The main interest in life and work is to become someone else that you are not in the beginning. Okay, let me count down five. Four, three, two, one. It's none other than Michel Foucault, the French philosopher that uh, actually profiled in my first awkward episode of this podcast. Uh, it's one of these weird sentences when he is not talking about power. You know, that's his obsession. Foucault, I love him. Here he is. He's talking about the transformative power of philosophy. Or at least the transformative power of his philosophy. So, you know, don't use philosophy to dig deeper inside. Use it to change. Perhaps. That's not my advice. That's his advice. And I think it gives a nice open-ended goal to uh, life to become something different. Hmm? Yeah, maybe. It can be very empowering. Unless you like who you are. Where, where you're at now. I don't know. Anyway, on to the main of the episode. Today, I want to talk about new atheism and how it led to the alt-right. I'm going to trace it through a personal journey, so, you know, strap in. It might not be your thing. Usually I talk about specifically philosophy things today. I'm going to try something different. Uh, I'm not alt-right, not even close, never tempted by that stuff at all. But uh, I think I can see from my experience watching the new atheism versus religious debates unfold years ago, I can see how two seemingly different things, new atheism and the alt-right, I think I can see how they're out, how they could be related. Uh, also, I'm going to do this all in one episode. Guys, I don't know if it's something that usual listeners like. So if you follow along every week, usually I release a new episode every two weeks. Uh, but uh, I'll skip a few weeks here because this one is super long. Yeah, it's uh, good to take a break. 
for people from my voice, I believe. Now, new atheism. Well, which right now, it's not really new. It was something that arose with the dawn of Web 2.0, you know, way back in the early 2000s. You know, the more interactive web that came about after the late 90s crash of the Silicon Valley bubble. It's the internet that we know, love, and uh, despise today. It's this gargantuan thing that's supposed to connect us all together. And in a way it did, I guess. Web 2.0 was basically a way in which the consumer of information, you, could, uh, you know, come and contribute by leaving comments, by uh, giving likes and having algorithms feed information directly to you based on things that you liked before. Yeah, Basically, it's the idea that we have in uh, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, YouTube... So, Web 2.0 came out around uh, somewhere around 2002. At this time, it was the two groups that uh, before, previously, would have had some distance from one another, atheists and religious people, could meet bypassing geographic distance uh, through meeting in forums and common sections online, you know. Uh, the religious and the atheists, of course, you know, they had met before. There's the debates of uh, Bertrand Russell, you know, British philosopher Bertrand Russell. And some priests, or I don't know his name, that were very popular on BBC in the 1950s. There's some really nice clips, if you like those old classic clips, um, where there was panel discussions, um, you know, very, very seldom, but they existed. And friends, classmates would occasionally discuss the validity of religion. You know, you might have a drunken discussion, but discussions, eh, they were rare and most often not public. Well, Bertrand Russell ones were. Anyway, uh, there were physical barriers like uh, space that curbed the excesses of the debate. But then, thanks to uh, Web 2.0, these uh, debates could be carried out long through throughout the evening and deep into the night. And you had not worry about offending people that, you know, you had to deal with on a daily basis because everyone was embiggened by the anonymity of the internet. Anyway, perhaps this debate arose to the fore because at that time, creationism was starting to become more aggressive, it seemed anyway, in fighting the teaching of evolution in American schools. Or the other possible cases that the creationists were always, you know, kind of aggressive or very aggressive. But thanks to the Internet, this aggression was uh, more highlighted in the uh, press. Thanks to the Internet allowing someone in New York or California or um, Vermont to know about the local news in Alabama or Georgia. Board of Education debates in small southern towns were probably given less actual paper and ink in the old media paradigm. So the creationists were seeming to get bolder or were getting bolder. And reasonable-minded people were exhausted by the religious overtones of the Clinton impeachment over the Lewinsky scandal. That was a few years previous. The uh, Christian right and the moral majority was coming into political maturity, if that's the right word, so to speak. In the 80s, it was still quite ramshackle and Democrat leaders like Jimmy Carter were quite religious in their own right, so being religious had less of a polarizing political power than it did in the late 90s, early 2000s. In the early 2000s, Bush Jr. came in and then uh, proceeded to start a war that some people saw as a crusade. 
On the flip side of the debate, the science side, people who supported the sciences were starting to feel emboldened by the improvements that the new internet technology had brought into their lives. Here was a clear confirmation of the benefits of science. Also, the culture in Silicon Valley, you know, was of the logical and scientific-minded programmer. You know, that was the sort of person that inhabited Silicon Valley who believed that science and technology would solve our problems, both technological and social. Plus, you had kids growing up in a religious environment who were now being exposed to new, more questioning ideas on the Internet. And a lot of these uh, kids were attracted to atheism. And like any ideology adopted in, you know, in your young part of your life, it can be quite intoxicating. You know, that's when you got the energy. Both sides felt victimized in some ways. Religion in retreat against a wave of secularism. Still smarting from the opening of society in the rebellious 60s and uh, angry at former hippies now gaining positions of legitimate political power. That's how they saw Clinton. On the one hand. And on the other hand, the uh, atheists saw themselves as uh, victims of exclusion and heavy moralizing in the America of Bush, George Bush, and the religious right. So two sides, both feeling like the victim, but both feeling emboldened by the rise of the internet, adding to the victimization, it, you know, created quite an interesting clash. And a lot of noise. Noisy. Initially, I was quite excited. I was just leaving grad school. I still wanted to pursue philosophy in some way, but also start my career without getting bogged down and reading overly academic works. And I thought, eh... Philosophical debate seems to be uh, flourishing here on the internet. Look at uh, all these people talking about religion and atheism. What a, what a great thing. Philosophy is entering, you know, the public sphere. Isn't that what I wanted? Previous to this, I grew up Catholic but didn't like going to church. Uh, I didn't really believe in anything too strongly. And I was uh, comfortable taking the a light version of the Bertrand Russell position of uh, the philosophical agnostic. And that's basically where I am today because of the debate I found online in those years was just uh, so ugly that I thought, hey, I don't want to deal with this noise. It's kind of funny because my dream was that philosophy would get more accepted in the public sphere. I guess public sphere is an overly formal way of putting it, maybe. Uh, I was hoping more people would like philosophy, that you could turn on the TV and easily encounter a conversation about a philosophical topic. I don't know if I ever expected to find that conversation on Oprah, let's say, but I thought there was, uh, and is, definitely room for it to grow. And wouldn't it be a great thing if it did, you know? I was excited back in the 90s when you'd turn on Charlie Rose or something, and they would be having a philosophical-esque discussion. Anyway, academic philosophy, it's hard. It's really hard. Demands a great deal of concentration to read, and as I was getting into my career, I was hoping for a more mid-brow, fun philosophy. And we get that today on YouTube, so that's a good thing, that the channel's like 8-Bit Philosophy, uh, School of Life stuff. I think also, as I was using the internet more and more, my ADHD started going into overdrive and I couldn't get my dopamine fixed from the slow-moving world of academic philosophy anymore. 
I can still get that dopamine fix, but it takes a while. It takes a while of reading and then it emerges slowly rather than initially all at once. Uh, so I needed to get that dopamine fix from online. You know, I was uh, slowly, uh, my brain was slowly turning into consuming junk food, you know, junk food of the mind. I think uh, Jim Gaffigan, comedian, calls it junk food of the soul. So what I found in these days was a lot of rudeness, a lot of nastiness on the internet. Uh, I'm a genteel Canadian by birth and uh, disposition, so it wasn't my cup of tea. Also, I grew up in a working class neighborhood, kind of poor, where a lot of people would just start throwing punches when they got into arguments. Fighting's not for me. Yeah. So, when I went to university and found the academic world, I loved it. Nice, measured conversation, yeah. Lively, intense, all those things, but never really dickish. Yeah, yeah never really dickish, yeah. Uh, the students were much less dickish than the professors. When the professors talked to each other, they could be pretty dickish, yeah. So, those students were pretty cool. So, when I found the religion debates online, I felt I was returning to something I really didn't want to, you know, an aggressive world. One thing that was strange that I noticed was I started having more sympathy for the religious side, which is weird because I'm not religious. If anything, I would lean more towards the atheism in a pure play of ideas. But it was incredibly frustrating to see the new atheist side make terrible arguments. Or, not terrible arguments, but incredibly philosophically naive arguments posing as fact. One such idea, and this touches on fact, that was floating around is that evolution is a fact, not a theory. You've heard it, you know? Evolution is a fact. Evolution is a fact. Well, no, it isn't. It isn't. Facts are empirical and based on observation. They're quite immediate pieces of knowledge. Theories are explanations of those observations. So evolution is theory. Evolution is not observable by anyone within our lifespan. And even if it was, you know, those time slices of empirical observation have to be put together to make a theory even if you could see it with your eyes um even if it was based on the eyes alone we could not observe evolution taking place because a number of possible theories could possibly fit the explanation of the changes that we call evolution hey that's a little bit of wvo quine for you um so and it's not to take anything away from evolution it is true but it is a theory not a fact and there's nothing wrong with it evolution being a theory Theories are necessary parts of the world, and they are no less candidates for truth than facts. They are, by their nature, harder to prove than facts because multiple theories can fit with a set of facts, but we can reason towards the best possible explanations that allow us to confirm that theory. True is a bit of a placeholder term here, as in the best confirmable theory that we have at the moment. Now, smart atheists understand this distinction between fact and theory. Richard Dawkins, he understands and he accepts this distinction, but he chooses to do something peculiar or, I think, infuriating, as when he says in one of the articles available on his website... Our habit of referring to the theory of evolution is similarly used to mislead by creationists. Huge numbers of people are bamboozled by the phrase, only a theory, only a theory. This essay, the one Dawkins is writing, it's me here quoting him, is designed to remove confusion by abandoning the word theory altogether when talking to creationists. So that's his quote. So Dawkins advocates for referring to evolution as a fact to win arguments against creationists. I guess he does it for political reasons, advancing his own side uh, instead of for rational or scientific reasons. Okay. Okay. 
But, the, you know, the whole appeal of atheism was its intellectual superiority. It could show through facts and reason that there was no creation of the universe by God. Creationism was so weak, you know, why resort to the misrepresentation of evolutionary theory to defeat it? And also, by um, resorting to misleading people, aren't you playing the uh, same game that the preachers uh, you despise play? Uh, aren't you undermining your own values that you claim any rational person should choose to live by? I quite like Dawkins, uh, so I tell myself. Uh, in interviews, he's very, he's very articulate and he's kind of charming, you know. In quotes taken out of context, he seems eh, quite horrible, but probably anyone interesting could be quoted out of context in that way. It'd be, it'd be fair, you know. So, But what happens is when the falsehood that evolution is a fact trickles down to his army of followers, that's where the problems happen. When it trickles down, the subtlety of Dawkins' understanding of it that we're only using it as a temporary tool in our battle against the creationists, it gets lost on uh, them and uh, his army of followers, and they tend to believe that evolution is a fact. And that gets repeated online, printed on T-shirts, and believed as gospel in a way that would make, uh, you know, an evangelist jealous with envy. But at the same time, I see Dawkins' points. He was fighting a real-world battle in real time. He thought that if he ignored it, it just wouldn't go away. You know, he's got that OCD brain. I don't see it. Th I don't see it that way, though. I think patience and exposure to arguments, in the long run, does more good than beating someone's head over with an idea because no one reacts well when they lose an argument in a way where the victor is not careful to embarrass. You know, a lot of sore losers. I think everyone is to a certain extent. Think Germany after the Treaty of Versailles. You know, if, if you like history and you think there's lessons in history, if there's any lesson to history for someone in 2020, it's, it's that one. It's be magnanimous in victory. Uh, but that's my own pet theory. And I can still kind of get where Dawkins is coming from while still being ultimately disappointed at his uh, method. Anyway... So, you get a number of Dawkins army kids that came of age in the internet in the age of new atheism debate. That debate itself went down around 2010 or 2011, let's say. It seemed to have less of a stranglehold on my imagination. Mm -hmm. and came across it a lot less. Yeah. So, these army of young new atheists had a taste for aggressive argumentation. There used to be so many early YouTube videos that were horribly filmed. They were titled um, Watch So-and-So, Destroy So-and-So. It's gross hyperbole. And the video was just simply two people from opposite sides screaming at each other at a demonstration in platitudes. Looked like it was filmed on a potato. So these young people were addicted to the dopamine rush of aggressively taking down their opponents and addicted to the hyperbole. I don't know why that bothers me so much. Um, and uh, their criteria of taking down the opponents seemed to be not on rational grounds, but aimed to please those, you know, in the echo chamber. But all of a sudden, this type of rush was gone when the debate was gone, or when it dried up, and dopamine is incredibly addictive. there for a second um making bread today some homemade bread and uh, the mixer comes on uh, every so often intermittently um and you can't record while the mixer's on it shakes up the whole the whole house but uh, i love making homemade bread and uh yeah 
It's going to be ready in about an hour and a half. That's going to be my next break time. Anyway, well, dopamine, the chemical that uh, is, uh, you know, dopamine is activated in addiction. So you had all these people in search of their next fix. Now, what I'm about to say is borrowed from the this really great podcast called the Rabbit Hole Podcast from the New York Times. It's really incredible podcast. It's much better than my podcast, so please check it out. Uh, nevertheless, it confirms um, a lot of things that I was thinking about in the years leading up to the podcast. So. I'm going to feel I can borrow from it a bit uh, liberally. Um, In that podcast, they talked to this guy, uh, this guy who lives in West Virginia, who became involved with the alt-right. He started out with new atheism. Then he was led via YouTube algorithms towards self-improvement videos, of all things. Yeah, And uh, this, in my opinion, it could lead to two ways. You know, when you get into self-improvement videos, one way is towards the incels. You know, the incels. The involuntary celibates. Yeah, uh, one guy who I knew started as he started as a new atheist, uh, looking at self-improvement videos to meet women, and then went to the whole pickup artistry stuff, and then got uh, he got down on himself, and that didn't work, and uh, he started getting angry at this certain pickup artist, and started getting a bit too close to incel terminology. I had no idea what was going on. I'm not that internet savvy. Uh, He pulled himself together eventually, but uh, I never figured out the incel connection until about a year and a half or so after uh, he moved away from Japan. And uh, I linked his obsessive use of the words like chads and cucks and talking obsessively about jawlines one summer uh, into him probably stumbling across that literature. So it's kind of dangerous stuff. Um, The uh, he was a gamer, so he was much more involved in internet culture is that even a word internet culture it seems so broad the other direction in watching self-improvement videos is going towards alt-right figures like jordan peterson and i'm gonna mess up the pronunciation of this uh, name stefan molnu who mixes politics with uh, self-improvement and they're two canadians oh my god it's bad for Canada. Anyway, this is what happened to the guy from the Rabbit Hole podcast. Uh, he he came across Stefan Molnu, and uh, a lot of things that happened with uh, self-improvement is that people do go in for that ethic, which, you know, I do from time to time. I've seen videos. I guess everyone has to some degree, is that a lot of people can feel entitled to see any improvements that they make. Uh, you know, they begin to start to think like, hey, I picked myself up from my bootstraps. Why can't you? They become very proud of their improvements and very proud that they did it themselves. You know, uh, I think in a certain way, that tired bootstraps argument is one of the most central and core feelings that drive right wing thought. It's uh, it's not a political principle. It's not very polished, but I think that has a huge amount of motive. So, mm, new atheism led to self-improvement videos, which led to incel culture, and then to alt-right movements. Or, new atheism led directly to alt-right movements via people like Stefan Mjolnir and Jordan Peterson, depending on, you know, your particular path, you know? So if I'm correct, if my pet theory is correct, and it led people there, uh, was it algorithms that did this work or was it something within the ideas of new atheism itself? And I think there, you know, algorithms did a lot of work, but I think there is also something within the mindset of new atheism that led people down this path. (laughs) 
Anyway, sorry, a lot of this stuff is so much pet theories, but thank you for bearing with me. All right. So here's where another pet theory is. I think there's a deeper connection with new atheism to the alt-right. This is where things get a little bit more philosophical. There's the idea of naive empiricism. Naive empiricism for me, as I use it, will mean the idea that only data, 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 gathered with our senses are given priority. Theoretical knowledge is to be looked at with suspicion. Any theoretical baggage on one's own ideas are masked in such a way that they are seen as mere facts by the holder. It causes the people who hold naive empiricism to uh, believe that their theory is not actually a theory. They're beyond such things, but that it touches intimately with the facts or is simply a statement of fact itself. As we mentioned earlier, the idea around the new atheism circle was that evolution was a fact. Now, the top echelon, like Dawkins, knew that this was a noble lie to be used in debates against the creationists, but many new atheists did not or did willful forgetting, um, or some just didn't understand the distinction in the first place. Even some very smart uh, people like Sam Harris don't seem to really get the distinction, and it shows in his befriending of people like Charles Murray and his willingness to engage in somewhat racist thought experiments. You know, Charles Murray, the guy, the sociologist, is that what he is? The author of The Bell Curve. This naive empiricism would cause people to look at black-on-white crime statistics, for example, in comparison with white-on-black crime statistics, and see the numbers as directly telling them that African Americans are prone to violence. Eh? Facts don't lie, they say. And, you know, that's what Ben Shapiro says. You can't argue with the numbers. That's another thing you hear. This new type of racist can't see beyond the numbers to see why black-on-white crime rates may be higher. Systematic racism and the wrongs of history, uh, you know, it's incredibly abstract and theoretical compared to cold, hard data uh, that their naive understanding of science brought them to value above all else. You know, it's when you value facts above theory. One good, or fail to see the distinction, one good thing about religion was brought to my attention by the historian Philippe Fernandez Armesto. He says we uh, tend to associate religion with this lack of sophistication, you know, in our, in our day and age. You know, this kind of backwoods thing or this traditional-minded belief set. Um, You know, we tend to think... um, But the religious mindset, it was actually a marked improvement over the naive empiricism of pre-religious humanity. You know, before religion emerged, it was just this naive empiricism. What you see is what you get. Religion, religious mindset, when that emerged, it required abstract thought and systematic thinking. You know, you have to believe in a whole world of gods, of mythology, of things you can't directly see. Um, So it required abstract thought. We can, of course, now use abstract thought and systematic thinking without religion, but the new atheists could be seen as tossing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, in their, you know, often simplistic world view of tossing anything out having to do with religion. So if I am a new atheist, I have naive empiricism under my belt, perhaps. Well, how do I understand people and their heads, their actions? Well, I look towards evolution, and evolution provides me with evolutionary psychology. Evolutionary psychology is a theoretical approach to psychology that attempts to explain useful mental and psychological traits, such as memory, perception, or language as adaptations, as the functional products of natural selection. 
there's a lot of worthwhile stuff in evolutionary psychology. Yeah, maybe, maybe. And some just seems to come across, but some of it just seems to come across as being vulnerable to abuse towards racist and sexist ends. It attempts to explain something like why do men tend to cheat more often than women or why do people react differently towards people within our in-group as opposed to outsiders or why do we share, why do we step, why do stepfathers supposedly have a higher rate of domestic violence towards stepchildren, etc., etc. All these social issues as being at one point um, all these kind of good and bad behaviors as being as existing because they at one point it was to our advantage to behave in this way. It allowed us to pass on our genes. Now, most evolutionary psychologists do not use evolutionary explanations as uh, moral justifications for such behavior. At least I hope not. Like advocating domestic violence as stepfathers. Nobody does that. No. But those outside the academic circle can easily confuse explanation for justification. Eh? The explanation of why a certain behavior exists on evolutionary grounds to justifying why it does exist on evolutionary grounds. Evolutionary psychology has a nasty habit of making all human behaviors seem natural. Hey, I want to cheat? No problem. It's only natural. Be a dick to someone who is not in my uh, in-group? Eh, you can't fight human nature. My co-worker is angry at not making the uh, same salary as me? Well, it's because we're not the same. We're different. What could be more clear than biological sex differences? Eh? After a while, this type of thinking grounded in evolutionary psychology and biology peppered with a bit of law of the jungle lore, hmm? things like equality begin to seem like abstract constructs forced on society to rein in those heading towards the top. thinks they're on top? Who thinks they're on top? Well, those people watching five hours of self-improvement videos on YouTube probably feel like they're heading towards the top on their own accord, yeah? Uh, I don't mean to slam evolutionary psychology because it's so much fun to read. It's sometimes seductively easy and intuitive um, as opposed to other academic stuff. It's just hard to know what to do with it. As someone on the left... Outside of avoiding environmental collapse, our society goals shouldn't be the promotion of passing on our genes for the genes' sake. I love my children and want to protect them, but only a psychopath would say they only do it for the uh, gene transmission. Me, I do it for the love and the fuzzy, warm feelings and, you know, for them in and of themselves. So it doesn't match with our personal or societal goals and... What good is it for politics? Well, that's another issue at another time. I kind of like it when uh, evolutionary psychology explains to me things about why I crave, you know, sugary foods or high-calorie foods because of food scarcity in the African savanna. But it tends to get in politically tricky waters very fast when it talks about social issues. Getting back. So... This naive empiricism, informed by evolutionary psychology, the fetishization of facts over theory, this combined with the dopamine rush that uh, the new atheists missed from the battles with creationists, you know, that kind of debate somewhat disappeared. 
it turns some of these new atheists having all this energy. And it, they use that energy to become trolls for a new target. And who was the best new target? Well, the libs. The liberals. I hate that term, libs. But the liberals. The, the liberals who are black-pilled or red-pilled or whatever it is. Ah, that, that terminology they use. These new atheists who became alt-writers began to see that these libs, they were black-pilled or whatever it is into the theoretical verbiage that obscures the true facts. And these new atheists who became alt-writers, they understand the true facts. This uh, naive, empirical way of looking at things like crime data combined with the dopamine rush of a good uh, trolling I don't know, I'm not a troll, but maybe provides a good uh, dopamine rush. Maybe this helps make sense of why the alt-right, a group of atheists who are technologically savvy and love disturbing photos, gross old humor, weird porn, anime, would lend their services to the state and traditional Republicans. Um, you know, getting that dopamine rush from the trolling. That and, you know, Donald Trump coming along. Donald Trump was the king of the trolls, and he straddled both worlds, you know, between shocking people and owning the libs, if you want to use that terminology. Yes, you know, someone like Trump, he targets leftists because of the reaction you just get. And you get a larger reaction from liberals, social justice advocates and leftists. You know, we're, we're a sensitive bunch. But... Uh, this sensitivity breeds empathy. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, being empathetic. So, does this mean the alt-right are one of the Frankensteins of science? Well, perhaps. We used to be able to, you know, associate, in America anyway, you know, the right wing with the Christian right and with traditional values and patriotism. But the alt-right is this weird thing that, you know, really comes from a different place. Now, it's not science's fault, uh, but did you give a warning to the you know, promotion of a certain type of scientism as a society? Well, now, in conclusion, because i got to conclude, I just want to say that the majority of uh, new atheists uh, never took this path. They are fine people, yeah. But I think some did. You know, that guy I knew and the guy in the rabbit hole podcast, at least, uh, and probably some other people. I think their path can be traced out to embracing this naive empiricism brought on by the aggressiveness of the new atheists. And it should give us pause for concern in the future in how we construct and manage our social movements. The top echelons of the new atheist movement, the Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins, uh, I don't think they'd ever be mistaken for being leftist, but they're not right-wing figures, I think, anyway. Although Doc Dennett's father was a CIA guy, but but they're not. I don't think they wanted to push people to the alt-right, but I think some of those people ended up there, at least according to my um, pet theory. Anyway, I got some fresh bread waiting for me. So, uh, yeah, thank you for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast.